The scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. The word of God speaks to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have, um, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown, and gather where I had scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from so he so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word to us. Guys, good morning. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is available if you need a band name for your metal bands. Hey, uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry, and I serve as the lead pastor of this congregation, and uh, I'm really, really glad that you guys are here. Uh, a couple of things as we dive in. If you've got a Bible, you can find Matthew 25. We'll get there in just a second. Uh, next Sunday, as we kick off the new school year, we're starting a new sermon series in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible because it is so broad and comprehensive. It is like a Q&A with the Apostle Paul, and it covers all kinds of crazy topics. Uh, the church in the city of Corinth was literally wilding out, and so Paul is writing to them about all kinds of things that we struggle with today, 2,000 years later. And so I'm really excited about it. I hope you guys dive in and uh, read that book to get ready. We've got these invite cards. If you guys want to grab some of these on your 
way out if you've got friends or neighbors or relatives that don't go to church that might have questions about Jesus. This would be a great sermon series for you to bring them to. And uh, it is going to cover a lot of stuff that's really hectic. There's a whole section on spiritual gifts, which we're going to hit. There's sections on marriage and singleness and celibacy and sexuality. And so you guys can pray for us. Um, For those of you that are like, you'd rather be locked in a box of scorpions than have to speak in front of people. Imagine having to speak in front of people and talking about those topics. So pray pray for us as we try to pray and get ready and do good work to study to serve you guys. Um, All right, I'm going to pray for you. You guys pray for me and we're going to dive in. Father, thank you so much for your presence today. And uh, Lord, I just, I want your help today to sit in your presence with my friends and to open your word, not to just get more data, but to encounter you. Lord, we need you to speak to us today and to ignite in us today godly ambition to live our lives in such a way that we steward what you've given us. And Father, I'm not even talking primarily about money. I'm talking about the gift of time, the gifts of talent, the gift of creativity, the gift of relationship, our voices and our hands, our minds. I pray today as we open up your word that you would uh, do what I can't do, that you would shift our hearts, that you would create in us worship. Um, Lord, I don't want to be like this third servant in this story that just totally misunderstood the character of his master. God, we want to love you and we want to trust you and we want to actually run hard, Lord. We we don't want to bury our talents in the ground. We want to shine the light of Jesus in the world. So um, would you help us and would you speak with us and uh, would you feed us today? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Hey, so let me try to unpack for you why we're taking this one standalone week to read this parable. Uh, Dylan mentioned that our community groups are going to dive into this counterformation module. And that's like the worst marketing ever. Every time I have to explain counterformation module, I feel like an idiot for naming it that. But here's what's behind it. Here's what's behind it. For the last couple of months, we've been looking at rhythms of grace. And the idea behind rhythms of grace is that there's these ancient practices in which we meet Jesus and we get formed to look more like Jesus. And there are ways in which God invites us again and again through scripture and through prayer and through fasting and through community and through the Lord's day on Sunday to have the directional needle of our hearts that always gets off course, that always starts to point its loves in the wrong direction, that always tends to love lesser things more than we should and the greater goods less than we should. These formations, these moments of grace, these habits and these rhythms help invite our hearts back to truth, to what's beautiful and what's good and what's lasting. And the idea behind these counterformation modules is that we as your pastors don't want to stand up here every week and rail against the things that are misshaping our hearts as much as we want to invite us to look at the things that have the power to actually shape our hearts, the things that are beautiful and the things that are true and the things that are good. One of the things that's just the water in which we swim as Americans 
A thing that used to be a vice that's no longer just a vice, but it's now a, a, a theological slash philosophical underpinning for how we live all of life is consumerism. Consumerism. Consumerism used to be a bad habit. It was the bad habit of maybe spending more than what we had or maybe overextending or maybe being less frugal than we should be or being ungenerous with the things that God had given us. But I actually believe that in our moment, consumerism is no longer just a bad habit. It's the way that we try to answer the biggest questions of what it means to be a human. What are people for? And what's the good life? And What's the point of my 70, 80 years on this planet? And what's the best chance that I have of leaving a legacy or doing something deep with my time here? And the answer that consumerism gives us is indeed a gospel that's not the true gospel. It's a message that through spending, we can acquire the right goods and experiences that actually will satisfy our soul. There was a marketing analyst who had this really darkly prophetic word decades ago as he was speaking to ad agencies about how to do their job. And here's what he said. And tell me if this hasn't completely come true in our cultural moment. He said, our enormously, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. Okay, that's true, man. And even if you fancy yourself a person of simplicity, even if you're a person that's working hard against the pull of consumerism, that's just in the air that we breathe. All day long, there's messages that are given to us that this product or this experience or this place that we can get to is going to answer these deep longings of your soul that you're going to achieve personage through these things. And the problem with this message of consumerism is that like, it's a false gospel. It can't actually give you the things it promises to give you. And the message of Ecclesiastes, among other things, is that there's a guy who was richer than you'll ever be, who had more experiences than you'll ever had, who had the ability to have the dream house, multiple dream houses, who had all of the goods and all of the services and all the experiences that we as people think would make us secure and happy and content. And he got all those things in ultimate abundance and he explored them all and they left him just as empty as he was at the beginning. In fact, I think that for a lot of us, even those of us that are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, the message of consumerism that's so pervasive has so shaped the directional needle of our heart. It's so shaped our affections and our pursuits that sometimes we don't even know why we're so frustrated and empty. Consumerism hollows us out. It, it cheapens what it means to be a human being. And, and what I want to say today as we dive into this amazing parable that Jesus taught is that the antidote to consumerism isn't just frugality. It's not just simplicity, okay? Like ancient spiritual leaders used to talk about simplicity as being important, and it is important. Pursuing greater simplicity and what really matters and being able to pull back from stuff that we don't need, all that has its place in our life. But the thing that Jesus is getting at in this parable is a deeper vaccine to the sickness of consumerism than just trying to be a person that uses less. It's actually, it's actually 
the beautiful antidote of stewardship, stewardship. And, and when I say stewardship, I know that that word comes with a lot of baggage. Um, a lot of you guys instantly jump to like, uh, like a Dave Ramsey version of stewardship or like a stewardship as just pertaining to money. And a lot of you guys are like grabbing your checkbooks. Here's the pastor. He's going to talk about money again. This is about fundraising. And I want to say from jump, actually like the conversation that I want to have with you today in the presence of God is not primarily about your money. That's tertiary at best to this conversation. That the idea of stewardship and how stewardship connects to a vision for the good life, how stewardship connects to following Jesus is actually a Christ-centered way of being in the world that sees your body and your time and your talents and your gifts and your money, whether you have a lot or a little, and even your children, not as things that you possess as the owner of, but as good things as gifts that God has entrusted into your hand that you need the very presence and wisdom of Jesus to use in ways that are wise, in ways that glorify God, and in ways that actually have eternal fruit and beauty to them. So today as we dive into this text, this is a parable that Jesus gives in a section of parables about his return. And he's talking to his followers about being faithful as they wait for the king to come back. And today, 2,000 years later, we just as much as they did need to figure out what does it look like to be faithful as we wait for Jesus to return. Or if Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, what does it look like to be faithful as we wait for the day of our death, which we should think about more than we do. So what we're going to do in this text is look at two big ideas, two big, two big ideas. The first is Jesus is talking about discipleship and its power to redirect and redefine how we live life. All right. Discipleship is not just about what you do on Sundays. It's about all of life. It's about worshiping, loving, and following Jesus with all 168 hours of your week and figuring out how it how it would look if Jesus really was your master when it comes to work and play and recreation and parenting or singleness and dating and all of the different complexities of your life. That's the first question. Then the second thing that we're going to look at is how discipleship also redefines the end that we're moving towards or the day of the Lord, the great day, the day that Jesus returns, the culmination of history, the end of this world and the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. So I'm gonna dive in. I'm gonna try to move really quickly. I've tried to figure out how to not make this sermon clunky and I've totally failed. So I apologize if the flow is weird, but I'm gonna do my best to get us into this text and to talk about the beauty of stewardship. First thing I want you to see, is that discipleship redefines how we live because first, it moves us from bondage to the freedom of being bond slaves. And that sounds really off-putting, but what Jesus actually offers us is a kind of freedom that's only found in submission to a master that won't gobble you up. Look what he says in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And I just want you, if you write in your Bible, to circle the word servant. And depending on your translation, it might say bond slave. Now, that's the last thing that we want to use as a word to define us. We don't want our identity to be an identity that's a serving identity. We don't want to be subservient. And 
fact, we, we kind of live in a moment where this is maybe the most off-putting thing about becoming a Christian because to us, the greatest value and the greatest ideal is freedom. Freedom. The whole message of our culture is one in which freedom is defined as freedom from any limitations or constraints. And a lot of the conversation, even around biology right now, is like biology has become sort of the last constraint that we're trying to figure out how to jettison, the last limitation that we want to get free from. And what Jesus is doing here that's really interesting is he's reminding us of this fundamental component of your identity if you follow Jesus, which is that you're not the master, he is. He is. And I know, like, if, if you had kids in the last couple of decades and you raised them with either Pixar or Disney movies, the message of them all is like, to your own heart be true. And that sounds so exciting when we have an inflated view of what our hearts actually want. But here's the thing that's crazy. Like, can you just be honest? I'll, I'll be honest with you. If you'll be honest with me, I know it's church, no place for that, but let's try it. Like, if you just followed your heart all week next week, where would it lead you? Because if I just uncritically follow my heart all next week, I will probably commit murder. True story. Like, our hearts lead us to destroy things that are beautiful. Our hearts lead us away from faithfulness to our spouse. Our hearts lead us away from the hard moments where we have to sit with friends that are suffering. We, I mean, don't you just want to get out of the pain when somebody's bringing to you all their issues and problems? Don't you just want to avoid that? Our hearts lead us to pretending like we're Peter Pan, not wanting to grow up, not wanting to mature, not wanting to give ourselves away. If you just gave unfettered access to your heart, what the Bible says is that your heart will lead to all kinds of evil things that are going to spring from your heart. And what Jesus is doing here that's really interesting, that's really powerful, is he's actually extending to us a redefinition of what it means to be a person, not around unlimited, unfettered freedom to follow your heart, but around a better way, a better path of bowing your knee to a master who loves you enough to die for you and who knows a better way than your heart knows. Now, make no mistake, the heart is really complex and there's also beautiful things in there. The Bible says it's the wellspring of life and we should guard it. Okay, but here's what's happening. The whole conversation around discipleship and stewardship starts with a conversation around lordship. Is Jesus Lord? And if he's Lord, if he's Lord, then there's gonna be a thousand moments in your life. There's probably gonna be at least a dozen moments this afternoon where your heart is gonna wanna kick him out of the throne of your life and a conversation around living a life of beauty as a follower of Jesus starts with reminding ourselves that he's the master and we're the servant. This leads to the second thing that's really powerful. Um, discipleship leads us away from the illusion of ownership to the reality of stewardship. The illusion of ownership to the reality of stewardship. Look what happens in our text. It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Okay, this is really powerful because we live in a moment where we like to believe the myth of the self-made man. And make no mistake, like if you read the book of Proverbs, hard work is a part of success in life, right? Like, is that crazy to say? Can we, can we amen that? Like you should work hard and that's a good thing. But here's the reality. Like you didn't choose where you would be born. 
and you didn't select your capacities and gifts. And if you're really intelligent, you're not really intelligent just because you studied hard. You didn't give yourself your brain. We live surrounded by all kinds of things that we don't deserve, that we didn't earn, that we didn't create. And the idea of stewardship is this powerful message from God that he's creator and owner, but he's not a creator and owner that's stingy. He's, he's profoundly generous in entrusting good gifts and good talents to his people. And this parable here is kind of parabolically vague. They're all kind of weird and hard to interpret. Um, What does it mean that he's talking about talents? Well, the word talent in our text just means a large sum of money. And their culture is a bunch of money. But, But here's what's wild. It's come to mean in our culture, based on this, all of your natural abilities. And I think that's getting pretty close to the truth. I think it's even broader than that. If you look at the whole scope of scripture, the idea of, a sacred trust as stewards under God is connected even to the idea of the eighth Psalm, which says, God, what is man that you're mindful of him, yet you've created him just a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've entrusted to him dominion over your creation. Okay, that's wild. Here's what the Bible's teaching is that God owns everything. He owns all the cattle. He owns all the truth. It all belongs to him as the creator. But then God entrusts to human beings various capacities and talents and gifts that we're to use under his lordship. This includes your intellectual acumen. It includes your artistic ability. I'm looking at the room of some of my friends that are artists in here that have been given the ability to be poets, And creators, like you didn't create that. That was a gift to you. I'm looking at friends in the room that are great leaders. You've been leading people since you were a kid. There's a couple of friends in the room that I guarantee you had briefcases when they were in second grade. There's people that numbers just work for you. You look at numbers and it makes sense in ways that I can't figure out. There's other people in the room that you've just had the ability to build things, to create with your hands. There's others in the room that just have incredible capacities to engage human bodies in ways that show mercy and dignity to people that are suffering, to do things that the rest of us don't have the stomach for. And what this text is teaching us, I believe, in the light of all of Scripture, is that your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your acumen and your resources, those are all things that you don't claim one ounce of ownership in. They all belong to your God. And your God has given them into your hands, be they great or be they small, he's entrusted to them to you to be a steward. Um, Can we get super nerdy for just a second? Hmm. Let's talk Tolkien. <laughs> Remember Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King? Right? And I won't, I won't go deep cuts. We can talk movie, not book. All right? If you're a real nerd, we can talk book. But remember in The Return of the King, you have the, the steward of Gondor, Denethor. And, and Denethor, over time as the steward, started believing the lie that he was entitled to his position as steward. He was entrusted a sacred trust to lead the kingdom, not as the owner, but as he waited for the return of the king, he was to make decisions that were in line and in step with the will of the king for the good of the people of the king. And he and his entitlement started thinking that they were his people. It was his money. It was his palace. And there's this tragic moment where he has to get dethroned by the real king, And that's a moment where he has to give an account to the king for the way that he poorly stewarded the kingdom. 
And what I want to say is that all human beings were created in the beginning to be stewards, to have deep dignity as regents of the earth, to care for creation and care for one another, to have unbelievable talents that reflect the glory of God. And all of us are like Denethor that start to believe the lie that it belongs to us. This leads to the next dynamic of discipleship. It's a shift from entitlement to gratitude. Entitlement to gratitude. Doesn't everybody hate entitlement in other people? <laughs> Look what happens in verse 14. For it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave. To one he gave five talents. To another he gave two. To another one. Here's what's happening. This is a parable about a grace orientation towards life. And grace has the power to punch entitlement in the face. Entitlement says, I deserve. Entitlement says, mine. Entitlement grafts and it clings and it clutches and it steals and it robs. And when entitlement's not met, it just gets bitter and blames everybody else. But grace is a different posture of life. If it's the master's property and if he's giving, grace moves them away from entitlement to a response of gratitude in which they're really thankful because they didn't have any boast or claim on the talents that he gave them. They were recipients of something because he was good. Grace, grace sets us free when we have a lot to hold it with open hands. And when we have a little to not be bitter and stingy and angry, grace is a posture of heart that realizes that, listen, if God gave me what I deserved, hey, look look at me. Like, if God gave me what I deserved, he would give me hell. But you know what he gave me and you instead? His son. Like, how does it get any better than that? That instead of giving us what we deserve, the wages that we had been working toward, towards were death. And instead, Jesus dies in our place and is raised from the dead to offer us mercy and security and forgiveness and a home for all eternity. That's a crazy reality. And so what happens with grace is it moves us away from entitlement. It moves us towards a life of gratitude and a life of greater contentment, something that consumerism can never do. Last one, and then we'll switch gears. Finally, and I'll be really fast. It moves us away from compartmentalized spirituality to all of life obedience. Notice that immediately with urgency, they go into the world and they engage in trade with their talents. Okay, this is not them taking their talents and then going to the synagogue or going to church with the talents. This is them going into the world and obeying the master in the marketplace with their talents. Okay, this is really, really important because what tends to happen, even on this side of the Reformation, part of which the message of the Reformation was like, all of life is sacred, all vocations are sacred. We still have this pull inside of us to think that some bits of life belong to God and the rest of the life that we've been given belongs to us. So Sunday mornings about God and community group, the rest of life, recreation and work, that's my territory or that's secular. And I think that that's a wrong way to see the world. Like there is truth in seeing this is a sacred space and I don't want to lose that. But it's also important to realize that he gave them the talents to go into the world in obedience to the master and that all of life gets redefined by their relationship with the master. Here's how 
Abraham Kuyper famously put it, he said, there's not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Hey, it's a holy thing to wake up and go to work. And not just the dream job that you wish you had. Like if you're going to go tomorrow to work and swing a hammer hanging drywall or pull an espresso or making pizza, like whatever your job is, it is a sacred holy thing if you do it to the glory of God working heartily unto him and not to man and as an act of service of your fellow man. And all of life, therefore, becomes this crazy arena where Jesus is central, not just to the church gathered, but Jesus is central to the church scattered as we go to work, as we play, as we eat, as we have people in our homes. All of life, all of life, instead of just a compartmentalized sliver of life, belongs to him. Okay, so now let's change gears. That's how discipleship redefines the way that we live in the world, but let's talk about what we're living towards because it's hard to live in the world if you're not thinking about what we're moving towards. And I'm gonna try to be really brief and just give you some categories. First of all, faithfulness is a long journey. Faithfulness is a long journey. Look at verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them after a long time. This is in a series of parables, including the parable of uh, the master of the house and the thief, the point of which is stay awake. The wise virgins and the foolish virgins, the point of which is be alert, be ready. Jesus goes parable to parable to parable, talking about his return. And the point of all the parables is, hey, don't go to sleep. Be prayerful, be awake, be alert as you await the return of the king. And then we get to this parable and these guys are trading and they're using the talents that the master's given them, but it's a long time before the master comes back to settle accounts. This is really important because if you, if you don't have an understanding of this, you'll start to feel like you've been forgotten and abandoned in this life of stewardship because life is hard and it's long and it's arduous. And in fact, all of these rhythms of grace we just spent this summer talking about are ways that we remind each other of who Jesus is in the midst of our waiting, either to see him face to face or for him to return. Because it's hard. It's hard. And listen, you don't have to do any work to drift away from Jesus. You don't, you don't have to do any work. Just like, don't do anything tomorrow and it'll happen. But to cultivate faithfulness with your time and your talent and your treasure and your relationships and with your body, that requires, that requires constantly, constantly by the grace of God in the power of the Holy Spirit coming back to who the master is and remembering that it's a long journey. It's a long journey, but it does have a final destination. We, we were going to receive this meal here in a few minutes, and this is a meal that stands between two meals. The first meal was a meal of rebellion in which our first parents cast off the rule of God and pretended that they were God, bringing devastation to the world. The last meal is the marriage supper of the lamb where we get to see Jesus face to face. All things will be made new and even the tears that you can't imagine ever being redeemed or wiped away all get redeemed in the presence of Jesus. And between those two meals, we get this meal. And this is a meal of waiting and watching and remembering that it's a long time before the master returns, but he will return. In addition, in addition, this is a reminder that at the end, we will all give an account. 
the master comes to these three servants for them to give an account. They each have to offer to the master what they've done with the master's goods. Now, I want to be really clear here. Access to Jesus, entrance into the kingdom of God, forgiveness of sins, that's not something that we earn through anything we do. It's a gift that God's paid for through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We just receive it by grace through faith in Jesus. But here's what we see throughout the New Testament. That grace will never stay alone. There'll be evidence of that grace in a life lived to the glory of God. With failure, with setback, with sin still in your life, with times that we blow it. But in the midst of the great day, what scripture teaches again and again is that we're all gonna stand before God to give an account for the gifts that he gave us for our time, for our lives, for our words, for the way that we loved or didn't love, for the way that we offered to God worship and offered to each other help, or the way that we withheld. And that idea of accountability before God is really important because, listen, if you don't return to that at least occasionally, knowing that there's a day where you're going to give an account for what you did in this life, you'll live your life without without direction. The direction that God offers us in reminding us of this day of accountability is a kind of sobriety in the midst of all the choices that we have to make at such a fast rate that it wakes us up to the fact that they actually matter. They actually matter. In addition, what we see in this parable is that faithfulness, not quantity, is the point. And this is really powerful. Did you notice that the two first servants that had wildly different amounts to offer the master. Um, a talent, some people think like one talent could have been as much in our contemporary dollars as like $600,000. So that's, that's a ton of money. And one guy offers to the master a huge sum of, mo of money. And the other guy offers to the master a huge sum of money, but a lot less than the first. And the master says the same thing to both of them. It's curious. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little, you're going to be entrusted with much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, this is really cool. This is really powerful because the point of the parable is not that God's going to evaluate the quantity of your service to him. And then he's going to look at what you've done. And man, you, if you didn't lead as many people to Billy Graham, you're out. What he's going to do is he's going to evaluate the faithfulness of what you did with what you were given. And that's really powerful because there's a diversity of capacities in the church of Jesus Christ. There's some in this room that have amazing ability. You have the ability to build companies that'll work for generosity and justice that'll reach the scale of billions to impact the kingdom. And there's others that are gonna work really hard to just like provide for your family and it's gonna be tough and you're gonna be scraping by to make ends meet and generosity is gonna be a mindful practice that's going to be continually a challenge in your life. There's some people in this room that you have the ability, you have the ability to build some ministry that's going to impact thousands of lives. You could start a nonprofit that's going to absolutely change thousands of lives in our city. And there's others that you're just going to do your job and go to work and there's going to be opportunities where you're going to like faithfully care for one person every now and then as God brings them across your path. And the point of this parable is not that it's like this outcome-based evaluation of the size, 
What God is telling us here is that he distributes various capacities, some really big, some smaller, some huge gifts, some little gifts, but they all matter to God. They're all beautiful. They're all valuable. What matters is faithfulness. And can can I just pause here for just a second? Um, I've had a lot of conversations this week with moms in our church that feel particularly beat down in our culture, that feel like they're not doing enough, um, that feel unspiritual because you're not able to journal like two hours a day with toddlers, that are feeling like, man, I have these ambitions for other things and I have like the stewardship of these kids. Can I just say, like, for those of you that are raising little kids, that is one of the most powerful sacred trusts that you could possibly be given. God entrusted to you immortal image bearers of him. And they only get one mom. And that's powerful and it's beautiful and it's life-changing. And to compare the impact of being a mom with whatever it is that's bigger and more flashy that our culture thinks is more important would really be a mistake. Don't do that. Like, we could apply this in a thousand different ways. There are going to be church planners that planted churches that never grew past 50 people, and they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's going to be guys that we send out to go plant churches that are going to reach thousands of people, and they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Quit comparing and competing and be faithful with what you've been given. And, and if you're bearing your talents, remember in this text, we're invited to godly ambition. Like you shouldn't then say, well, it's not based on quantity, it's based on faithfulness, so I'm just gonna play a lot of video games. <laughs> like that's not the application of the parable. The application of the parable is whatever you've been given, freaking get after it for the glory of God. Go for it. What are you waiting on? All right, now look at the last thing. I'll close with this. Faithfulness begins and ends with seeing the master rightly. This is the end. Look at verse 24. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to one to the one that had 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast this servant into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, what is happening here? Because it certainly seems like this guy is encountering like condemnation and judgment based on his failure of stewardship. Here's what I want you to see. It's not that he's receiving condemnation for his failure of stewardship. It's that he's failed in his stewardship because he doesn't know and trust the master. And the basis, the basis of the commendation that the others received was rooted and grounded in the reality that they knew and trusted the master. And this last servant is cast away out of the kingdom, out of the presence of God, not because he just blew it with his stewardship, but because he never, he never loved, he never trusted, he never received the master for who the master is. What I want to say is like a little view of God that's like stingy, 
a view of God that he's the great withholder, that he's anti-joy, that he's all about restricting your joy and delight in this world, that he's just like wanting to throw a wet blanket on everything that's beautiful and powerful and good. That's how this guy sees the master and the result of that is condemnation because that's not who the master is. The master is good. He's generous, he's gracious, he's kind, he shares, he gives. And what we find here is that if you have a really big view of the master, if you see him for who he is, as one that died in your place, that loves you, that's interceding for you, that gives you everything you need for life and godliness, that hears your prayers, that's never gonna abandon you, that's not a Pharaoh that gives you the job of making bricks but doesn't offer straw, but instead he's gonna keep, he's gonna keep sustaining and strengthening you for the responsibilities he's given you. When you see him like that, that results in trust and it results in faithfulness. It's all about how we see the master. And here's what's crazy in this story. Um, I wonder, Jesus didn't mention this, so it's not in the text. I'm just, this is just a, a thought experiment. Like, I wonder what would have happened if the third servant would have just had a conversation with the first two. Like, if the third servant would have just had a conversation with the first two and said, hey, um, the master, like, he's a hard man. He's stingy. He takes what's not his. I'm gonna go bury his money in the backyard so I don't get in trouble. Like, don't you think that they probably would have said, hey man, that's not who he is. He's faithful, he's generous, he's kind, he's just, he's trustworthy. You can trust him, go do your best. (laughs) That would have led to a conversation where he could have opened his eyes maybe and seen the servant, seen the master more clearly. And that's, that's what we're trying to do as we dive into this in our groups over the next couple of months. That's why we get together, is because we need help to see the master rightly and we need to remind each other of who he is And we need help along the way so that we can finish the race as faithful stewards. All right, let me pray for you. Um, Father, thank you for my friends. And uh, man, help help us to see Jesus Christ in his glory, in his humiliation, in his exaltation. Help us to offer Jesus our worship. Thank you for the entrance into the joy of our master, which is the point of life. Thank you that you entrust those that are faithful with little with more. Thank you that in ways that we don't even understand or comprehend, you've said that your people will reign with Christ. Thank you that there is glory coming, even though it's sometimes hard to see in the midst of all the things that are broken here. So uh, help us and tune our hearts and feed us as we come to this meal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.